And so he was born, his mum's clearly in pain. I didn't do any of the work. Nick and his mum did the work. I was just there. It's just like, you know, it's a bit like trying to catch a wet bowling ball. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> He used to be a real grumpy fuck. Like he, <laughs> he uh, because because I think he's always been just motivated to be useful. Really want to be useful. Want to do something good for people or for the world. Dad is such a mystery. Dad's such a dickhead. Dad used to be a drug dealer. Dad is missing again. Dad kisses on the lips. Dad's kind of hot. Dad locked me in a cello case. Dad ate my chips. But who is Dad? Really? Dad to me. Welcome back to Dad to Me, the podcast that steals Dad's stamp collection and blows the cash on smack. (laughs) We're on episode four, and uh, this week we're in for a real ride with a couple of Melbourne hooligans. Mm. Are you ready for this, Jump Daddy? Mm. I'm going to be honest, as a lifelong Sydney sider, I always feel slightly uncomfortable (laughs) when dealing with Southerners, (laughs) but I'm going to hold my nose, gird my loins, and get on with it. Tell the people who we got today, Dr. Tom. (laughs) Okay, yeah, let's get over this phobia. Our son, Nick, is an actor, educator and rock and roll frontman. Born and raised in Melbourne, a place at the National Institute of Dramatic Art brought him to Sydney. So Nick has made it through many a life change intact. For one, his parents got divorced in his tender years. And now, from his own previous marriage, Nick has a beautiful daughter by the name of Juniper. Or Junie. He's a father and it's got him thinking, you guessed it, about his own papa. Mm, And what a papa to think about. Nick's dad, Rob, is an accomplished geomorphologist and also, wait for it, a Melbourne media personality Mm. to boot. So rarely do those twain meet, but they, they certainly meet in this figure of Rob. Starting life in academia, Rob went on to become one of Australia's favourite TV weathermen. He's now retired from his job on the box, but Rob Gell continues to push for environmental sustainability in the world of business. His head has kind of always been in the long-term future of humanity. But son Nick has some questions about the past. Well, geologists and climatologists think in deep time, but we think in deep dad. (laughs) Gross. Growing up, it sucked knowing that everyone at your school was able to watch your dad that night or that you were in the papers or people knew, basically just knew about your affairs. So I, I off, I, my initial reaction to celebrity very early on was this is a hindrance, this is a pain in the ass, uh, which I think is true. I, I think we know that celebrity is reasonably pernicious to people uh, and you have to be really well grounded and have your shit really together to handle it. Not that we hadn't ever had any kind of serious issues, but it was just, it was annoying for me as a kid to have kids at school feel like they could comment on it. Everyone has hurled abuse at a weatherman on a, <laughs> uh, you know, on one day of their life. And so when that gets filtered down from some asshole schoolmate's father, 
through the cipher of their kid and then comes out at you at school, <laughs> you it well, it sends you a little bit crazy. That's so there really was interesting. What was it like? I like I didn't fucking bring an umbrella yeah. and it's your dad's <laughs> yeah. fault. Completely. Your dad doesn't know shit. How <laughs> the does he even? Is he? And they'd be like, is he even a meteorologist? And I'd say, well, no, he's actually a coastal geomorphologist, but fuck you. <laughs> My heart goes out to children of famous people. I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard. Are you, having said that, amazing opportunities. You get to go to fucking movie premieres. Like, oh, this is, I'm going to the premiere of the new Star Wars with my dad. That's so cool. I'm going to go to school. And that asshole who told my dad that said yes. that my dad did a shit job, I'm going to throw this in his face. <laughs> but, you know, I think. Two and a half hours with Jar Jar being Slater. <laughs> yeah, shit. <laughs> Foiled again. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think uh, it's uh, on the whole, on the balance of things, it's a difficult thing to have. It's just an added pressure, I think. Mm, yeah. So we understand there's a bit of family lore, a, a classic story of your dad getting particularly perturbed at your disposal of a supermarket dessert mm-hmm. container. Can you tell us that story and, and maybe what it points to more deeply in yep, terms yep. of your dad's priorities? Yeah, yeah. So this was a lot older and I think I had a uh, – I was having a band practice. So I had mates over and we were all drinking and partying on. Dad had gone to, I think, a party. I think it was a media party but he, he was meeting with friends and he'd been out. It, it was one of those ones which is a lunch that turns into a dinner which turns into a kick-on. Uh, so one of his favourite things to do is call me when he is pissed – and he thinks I'm sober. <laughs> he, he thinks I'm sober enough to drive yeah, him, him from wherever he is. So I was having band practice and I was, I was staying at his house and um, he picks up, he's like, mate, you got to come and get me. I'm pissed. I'm, I'm pissed. That nah, coming. Uh, all right, I'll just be here. And he, I went and I picked him up with my mate and we got home. And dad, when he's had a proper skinful, he, yeah, three sheets to the wind, he will regale you with anecdotes. I think it's, it's you know, it's obviously not all the, all the time, but it's a real release for him because I think his day-to-day is so serious. Anyway, so he was cracking us up and he was very much on form. I think he kind of, disip- when we got home, he disappeared to his room for a while, came, came back shirtless, continued the conversation. <laughs> Ready to wrestle or... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, it was far, no, at least it was far removed from like the angry naked dad days. So when, you, when you're a kid and you have kid, like friends over and you're staying up and you should be in bed and then down the, you know, down the hall you hear, <laughs> boom, go to sleep. I was like, shit, shit that's dad's <laughs> I really shouldn't be saying this. But um, that was scary, scary naked dad. Oh, God, you can't play that. Uh, that was scary, hey, Naked Dad. When you but- got a good circ, you got to get it. <laughs> but this was just, I think, good nature. I think he was trying to get changed in pyjamas or something and just got overly excited about continuing on the conversation. And he came back and he saw, whilst uh, during chat, he looked at the bin and I had, I think it was a disposable tiramisu, like a PET little cup thing. I'd put it in the recycling. Uh, I'd done the right thing because I'm my father's son. And he stopped and he looked at it and, uh, you know, there was like tumbleweeds and, and there was just a frozen moment and he picked it up and he was like, what, what is this? And I said, well, that's my tiramisu container that I've put in the recycling because I'm, you know, I'm not a, a, a cretin. What of it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
how do you do, sir? <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, he said, do you, what, what are you doing? Why are you buying these? What are you, what are you doing this for? And I was like, well, I wanted a dessert. I bought it this afternoon. And he, it immediately dropped and he said, do you know how much energy goes into this disposable material? And in his drunken state, he started crunching some numbers for me and was actually really upset that I hadn't asked him to make me a tiramisu, that we, we were going to consume these materials. And I think at the time, I didn't realize what was happening. He was having sort of a, he was having his moment. And I, I said something facetious and dismissive, like, well, I'm not going to change the world or... It's just one it's just one container which really upset him. So he cried and he oh. said no but Nick you don't get it. It's it's we have to do this for everyone. We we have a great responsibility. And uh, and it was quite interesting there because he's obviously such a such a campaigner. But uh, has a sort of stiff upper lip and, and is quite, I guess, business-like in his manner and demeanor and how he talks about things. He has to be. He has to be. But it was one of those times when I went, wow, there's sort of a, there's, there's a heart, there's an emotional mm-hmm. content to this stuff. He cares about people. He cares about people who are going to be affected by things like climate change who really have had no part in it. Mm. He feels like his campaign is to do what he can. And that was, yeah, it sort of, it changed my outlook a little bit that moment. And it also kind of changed how I saw him because I really saw an emotional side to what he does, mm-hmm. which wasn't uh, which wasn't the proper business facade that mm. he likes to present. We're just going to move on now to your questions for dad. What do you want us to communicate to your dad. So yeah, if you could just take us through those questions and explain a little bit about them. I really want you to talk to him about partying days, being a young, kind of cool, pretty edgy, hot, young uh, Victorian College of Geography teacher with a massive afro and a huge handlebar moustache. Um, and I know a few of the stories, but I'm interested when I'm not in the room, what you can get out of him. So we're asking what really went down in your wild partying days at Melbourne College? Did you have have any moments where you pushed it too far? Any regrets? Which I, the regrets part is we'll get to the good stuff. We'll get to the real nitty gritty. <laughs> get to the- we'll push that for sure. So the second question is more about, well, look, dad's a bon vivant. He loves wine. He loves food to an extreme. It's what he's into. He's a very, very fit guy and he goes to the gym three times a week still, even at his age, but he has this passion for sharing food and drink and he'll never be happier than if um, he serves you a wine out of the cellar and you go, oh, Rob, I like that. He just thinks that's awesome. Um, So I'm interested to know what is his happiest moment? Like I, I feel like that's it, but... Maybe if it's quite a broad question, when does he feel happiest? Uh, when does he most get into a sense of flow? Mm. Where's his happy place? And mm. and I guess, yeah, maybe what he finds most fulfilling. Mm. Mm. Great. Rich question. For the third question, dad's sometimes a little bit cagey around uh, his relationship with his dad. He's, he's pretty upfront with the fact that it was, was lacking. There wasn't very much emotional connection there. He grew up largely, as far as I can understand, uh, idolizing his mom and working with his mom in the household a lot. And she imparted values of education and community and 
gregariousness and being a garrulous kind of character, which which he's um, taken to. But I'm interested in the absence of dad's dad in the house. I really want him to be pushed on this point of doesn't he think that that sort of increased expectations of, of for him as a young guy that taking care of his he had a, a younger sister and then a little brother who mm. both look up you know looked up to him in a huge way and he's such a natural leader or he presents as someone who wants to impart knowledge I want to do my bit I want to he he's such a natural leader that I'm interested in really unpacking or, or trying to make him maybe see that these things are are correlated. There's some sort of correlation, I think, between the absence of his dad and what was expected of my father as a young man and how that has played out in his life more broadly. I believe that's, you know, one of those meaning of life things. But um, yeah, I'm interested to see what he has to say. He's a much better dad than I was. (laughs) And interestingly, I'm a much better dad than my dad. Nick has that innate ability to engage with people, whether it's me and my age group or even my mum who left us three, four years ago. But he's also, he can also engage particularly well with kids under 10. Now, and he's doing it, I watch him with his daughter, and his ability to communicate with her, and this is this communication thing that's, all, always self-evident in people that can do it. Nick's, I think, Nick's great skill is, is teaching uh, under tens. They adore him. I know for a fact that his his estranged wife fell in love with him in an acting class, hadn't met him, and walked into the class and he had six year old on each leg and a five year old on each arm, and he was pretending to be a giant. They're walking around the room, and these kids were just messing around with this bloke who could do it and that's i mean that's clear in the way that he deals with juniper they've just got this extraordinary high level of engagement both of them and he's a superb dad as i can see unfortunately i don't see them well enough often enough but i see it and we we get online in the new world and we talk if you can sit junie down long enough to talk to grandpa or goggy, goggy, as she calls me, <laughs> but I think he's a superb dad. That's a really, that's a really nice thing to feel, and and that actually ties into my next question, which is about the future further down the track. Okay, so as a long-standing environmentalist yourself, you're you're always thinking about the future, and and. People of your generation, they, they do tend to be a little bit more op- optimistic, but for us and for your son's generation, the outlook can often feel a bit more pessimistic, actually. So we all know that many young folk nowadays are actually delaying having children or they're not having children at all, precisely because the future seems such a brittle, brittle place. Now, do you have any sort of advice that you'd like to give your granddaughter, Junie, about this? You know, are you are you hopeful for her and, and her children if she chooses to have them? Boy, that's the hard question. <laughs> I learned about the greenhouse effect in second year botany class called Conservation Global and Local Aspects in 1972. We've known about climate change as the physics of climate change since um, Joseph Fourier in about 1824. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of physics. So the current nonsense that's going on about you know, someone believes that it's not correct, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in your beliefs, so 
these are facts. So when you understand the circumstance, you have to move to hope when you're talking to your granddaughter. It becomes a different conversation and you have to really qualify what you say. Now, with a bit of luck, Juniper Jill's going to become Prime Minister, but I hope that we've actually left things in a better condition. I mean, my generation, and I'm ashamed to say, but there are plenty in my generation who are not ashamed to say, is that, as Barack Obama said, the first generation that won't be around to see the consequences of our actions. Mm. So when you ask me what... Yeah, when you ask me what am I going to say to Juniper, I don't know. That's a conversation. I'm going to wait till she's eight. She's developed some logic, although she's probably probably already done it. I haven't. I've probably missed it. She's young, <laughs> but it's a real problem. And I think that if there's this sort of business of you, know, you can know too much, or you can understand too much. But I, you know, have great empathy for James Hansen, the grandfather of, who wrote a book called Tears of My Grandchildren or something like that who recognises this stuff and understands this dilemma that we now face, that we actually haven't responded. Mm. I mean, the, the Paris two-degree target, Hansen says, oh, we just plucked that out of the air because we thought that surely the world's going to respond. We've given them the science. They're going to mm. do something about it. Two degrees is never going to become an issue. But now we're in a situation where plus 1.5 is virtually unachievable and we have to make some radical changes. I mean, the... The reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions that we've seen in in 2020, the COVID-19 year, we have to maintain this level of emissions reduction every year to, to get to stay under plus two. Mm. So it's a mammoth task. Fortunately, business is beginning to understand, I hope, I hope the transformation and the transition to a decarbonised global economy happens fast enough. We're actually going to move on now, Rob, to the sort of crux of the discussion because uh, your son Nick has given us a bunch of questions that is, is incumbent upon us to ask you. And so we're going we're gonna to start with the first now. So Nick, Nick is obviously enamoured of your past. He's really interested, particularly in these kind of wild partying days that you had at Melbourne College. Now, you know, could you first of all tell us a little bit more about that part sure. of your past? And, you know, do you have any moments where you feel like you pushed it too far or do you have any regrets from that time of your life? I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Denial, that's a good way to start. Well, no, I don't. Well, I, I might be, but I've obviously, obviously said either he's misconstrued or I've said some things I've been bragging or. At home and had too much Pinot Noir or something like that. <laughs> I look weird. I don't think parties I had when I was in my twenties and teaching before I got into media were much different. Mind you, it's a different time, right? This was this is the nineteen seventies. I was at university. It was a was a well, satellite communication was brand new. We were we were at war in Vietnam. You know, we had moratorium marches of 100,000 people in the streets in Melbourne. It was a difficult time. And people – and and there, was, and there was a new awakening in personal behaviour. Men and women and men and men and women and women uh, behaved differently than they had almost forever. Now, frankly, I'll have to have a discussion with my son about that and then just pin him, pin him down and see what he's referring to. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't, I honestly can't 
record. Now, I we would, all had fun. We all had fun. But I don't think even watching what I reckon he's done in his <laughs> life was all that much different. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I wonder if Nick is uh, projecting onto you some of the darkness of his own past, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most shocking news to come out of that account is that there were no wild partying partying days for you. <laughs> so that's, that's a well, secret I'd keep uh, <laughs> quite tightly under wraps. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had—I mean, we had good parties, and uh, I think actually uh, that sort of cohort between, let's say, eighteen to twenty-five, I think they have—they they do designated drivers in cars. We didn't. The things I did under the influence of alcohol in motor cars in that sort of five to ten year period was extraordinary, which I shouldn't have done. Rob, you are a bon vivant by trade, by recreation, by reputation. Uh, Your son and no doubt your many friends would identify you as somebody who's very happy or close to it when cracking a quality bottle of Pinot out of the cellar. Is that a picture of you at your happiest? Yeah, I think so. uh, Yes, I can think of another scenario, but absolutely. There's nothing I enjoy more than sitting around a table with friends and having a good conversation and having at the end of the night someone say, I don't know what we drank, but it was all terrific. Um, The other thing, since you raise it, is it comes back, and I mentioned this sort of uh, concept of sense of place. I, my spiritualism, if I ha- if I have something like that, is being in the outdoors and understanding the natural world around me. So I love you know nothing better to do than going sitting on a rock at on the coast or in a national park or something like that, understanding where I am. So I understand, and when I when I say understand where I am, I mean understanding the latitude, understanding the geology. And because I understand the latitude and the location, I've probably got a bit of an idea about the climate. So I understand the weathering profile of the rock that I'm sitting on and why the soil's like it is. So I understand why the trees and the flowers and the things are looking at are the way they are. And if I've got a pair of binoculars and I can spot some birds and see some other things, that's that's another – that's very spiritual. I really enjoy that sort of engagement and understanding of my – you know, it's a sense of place. My place on the planet, my place on the planet. That's important too. The great outdoors, a great bottle of wine and and being able to enjoy both to much more than a superficial degree are obviously real pleasures of your life. Nick mentioned that perhaps in terms of a satisfaction, a sense of making a great contribution, that that feeling for you might always be just around the corner. Ooh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, look, I still think I still think I've got a contribution to make. I don't know what it might be, frankly, but I often and I, and I've watched this. There's a period of time when grey-haired old buggers like me uh, were just completely discounted by young blokes like you. As it's that old line about the, and I'll I'll do it this way. Nick might have said, "Dad, when I was twenty, you knew nothing." Now that I'm 30, it's amazing how much you've learned in the last 10 years. <laughs> I that, that I only I, I remember giving a speech at my 50th birthday party, and one of the and it was the uh, managing director of the television station was there, and he said, you know, what a great career you've had, 
And when I responded, I said, my God, I've only just started. I've only just worked out what I know mm. at age 50. I, I'm continually refreshing my brain and keeping up to date with the latest science, but also how to apply that to business so that we can actually, I might be able to continue to make a contribution to what hopefully will be a better world. Nick tells us that you grew up largely without your own father. Um, He was pretty absent for a critical part of your childhood. Do you think that the absence of your father and, and the sort of increased expectations that were loaded on you at that time, do you think that shaped who you are? And did that also make you careful to manage your relationship with Nick properly after you and his mum got divorced? So it's a sort of double-barreled question there about your father's absence. Yeah, that's hard to not. It's hard to think about as well as hard to answer. My dad was there, but he wasn't there. If you know what I mean, he just behaved differently. And and there, and there's and there were some circumstances around. I mean, his mum actually lived in adjacent to us so she period time when, when she was in the house a lot I didn't spend as much time with either of my parents much I'd go to my room rather than engage with her because and, and my, my dear mum used to say you know three generations don't get on in the house together that's what we were trying to do it so that didn't work either uh, and there was a lot of sort of there was a lot of stuff around that it was just that I think my dad tried, but he actually didn't know how to engage. He didn't know mm. how to do it. And I think it was part of his generation mm. uh, where, you know, there was that sort of, you know, he was the provider. He he had, for my, until uh, my younger brother went to school, my mum then went back to teaching. So there were two incomes in the household, but until then it was his income. And I think that the provider sort of, you know, that was the job. And if that was done, the rest was managed by mum. And so I've, and it's a dilemma. So in thinking about it, my mum and my dad were just fundamentally different people. I don't think he'd learned in the same way as my mum did how to do that engagement stuff with people and talk to people and engage. and have. So he was a, just a different person. And there wasn't much instruction. He, he didn't give much instruction to me. He wasn't engaged sufficiently. I mean, I've, Things that I've learned about how to behave and how do you deal with a bank, all that simple stuff, he didn't do for me. There was no, there was no instruction. I was just left to find out a lot of that stuff on my own, which you do because you apply yourself and you ask questions. But so that was unfortunate. But I, I've never worried about it. It's just one of those things that didn't happen. I've realised that other, you know, I realised probably by the time I got in, but late teens and 20s that other families are different and that's not something I've that's come to me via my dad my mum was different my mum was quite a different person Mm -hmm. but as I say some of those things that I learned were not a good way for a father to behave uh, with some of the lessons that I learned and hopefully I'll pass some of it on to Nick I don't think I've been comprehensive in any (laughs) way and there are lots of things that I haven't been successful at as a dad for Nick. Yeah, just to dive into that a little bit more, I mean, as you say, if we learn from our parents' generation by negative example primarily, do you think that you reacted to your dad's lack of engagement by a lot of engagement with Nick? I mean, or would you say that you went too far in the other direction or do do you think you, you reached a kind of happy medium? 
hopefully a happy medium because I it's a typical thing. I Man, I must we did something. I don't think I spent enough time with him. Perhaps that's a better answer. Mm. I mean, I, I would have liked to have done more things together um, mm. for whatever reason. See that Nick came to live with me when he was about eight years old, so we had that fortunate opportunity that he grew up largely with me, uh, but obviously with, with as much of his seeing as much of his mum as he, as he wished, but largely with me. So we, we managed all that. So, But that was like regular humdrum stuff, get up, get to school, come home, have dinner, mm-hmm. do your homework, go to bed, get up and do it again. Mm-hmm. And weekends, depending on the, you know, it was either a Star Wars epic, uh, you know, wet day Sunday or something like that, or we did other things. But at my age now, I wish I'd done more. I wish we'd spend more time together. I wish there's a whole lot of things I wish we'd done. I've still got... Once we get over this damn COVID thing, I want to. I've got a few special holidays planned and stuff like that that I want to do because it's catching up with lost time. Mm. I think probably lots of people think that, mm. uh, and especially as they get older. I do reflect on my own mortality. You, know, you, th- you think more about it. Have, have I done the things I want to do? What state of all of the stuff that I've got? I mean, I was talking to, so I said to my wife today, I must let you know the combination of the safe. That sort of stuff. I mean, there's, there's silly, silly things that I didn't think it wouldn't have thought about when I was Nick's age, mm. but you probably should. So that sort of preparation for the end of life is different and reflecting on the things that you might not have done or the things that you should have done better or things you've got to catch up on or the things you've got to make good at. So, yeah, life changes. But, you know, the other thing, Nick might have to put up with me for a number of years. My mother was a week short of 92 and Dad was 91. So he might have me for another 30 years and I'll make him pay. <laughs> Hello, Nick speaking. Hello, we're uh, we're on the line with you, Jump Daddy and Dr. Tom Goy here back with you. How are you doing today? I'm pretty well, pretty well, doing all right, as well as can be expected. As well as can be expected. That's uh, that's basically the greeting that we all say to each other nowadays, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so happy to have you back on the line. We have listened back to your pop and, and you have as well. So we just wanted to uh, dissect a little bit of that with you now. You know, what were yeah. your favorite moments that, that came out for you? The big moment for me, which just made me go, oh, uh, to pieces was when he was like, oh, Nick's a much better dad than me, which just kind yes. of was like, oh, as, a, <laughs> as his son, particularly with him kind of being an only dad for a long time and being reasonably strict mm. uh, and, and sort of the, you know, the buck stops here and, and the authority on everything in the household and out of the household as the matter might be. It was really interesting for him to to say that that was that was sort of a big a big realization for me or like a revelation or it was it was something that I found really really moving. Mm. So Nick, uh, we're gonna get onto the nitty gritty of the questions now, and just to give a little recap, the first was the one about the you know the wild partying times of his life, his Melbourne College days. Did you learn anything new out of that, or? Was it was this the moment where you realised that you were projecting everything onto your dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. I learned that he probably wasn't as cool as I thought originally. <laughs> Look, to be honest, but that's I guess that's part of it as well. Like you, you kind of have a romanticised idea. Mm. I kind of picked mm. up things and 
and sort of made assumptions like that. I, I know on what points my dad is particularly cool. And, but I guess it, I guess I'd kind of, the, the matter of factness of it was kind of uh, interesting for me is what I took away from it. Yeah, I, I think it was mm. a little bit of projection. He's a lot more, what you see is what you get, I think, than I maybe uh, anticipated, particularly on that question. So the second one was, uh, when are you happiest, basically? A pretty pretty simple mm. question, but I thought his answer was interesting here too. Did, what did you get out of that one? His life's been lunches, like be, being in the media <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> like there were there were one lots of lunch. big lunches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it was just one long lunch, and and obviously that's kind of a defining, a defining value for him. The the nature stuff is really beautiful. Like I love how he connects with all of that stuff. But he'd go bushwalking with you, and you'd be like, "Where's Dad gone?" And all of a sudden he'd be sort of thirty meters back down the track, and he'd be standing still, and you'd have to backtrack because you can't lose him. And you'd go like, "Hey, mate, are you okay?" And you'd go, "Hear that?" Listen to that. And it's like, what, what? And you go, third song, you've got about uh, 40,000 years of evolution that's telling you that you're okay as long as you can hear that third song. That's really good. Like, they're really good values. Um, I, I guess in particular, having just watched something like The Social Dilemma and thinking about society in that paradigm, the values that dad kind of holds are things that I think I can, like, work harder at making sure that they're part of my life with my daughter. So appreciating food in particular. Well, you know, we talk in this day and age about like a gratitude mindset and a thankfulness mindset as well. But when really like sitting down and going, oh, awesome food. Thank you so much. This wine is great. Mm. Um, and even like going back further, like saying grace before eating, not that I'm religious, but but these kinds of things that were like fulfilling, mm. yeah. I think they were a box in terms of gratefulness and thankfulness that we, that we uh, are missing. So the third question goes off in a bit of a different direction. And that was that your dad had to step up as the man of the house at a young age, somewhere around 15. And mm-hmm. whether that absence of his own dad uh, in the household increased expectations on his responsibilities as a teenager, as a young man and, and shaped who he mm-hmm. was. What did you learn from that angle? I still think he downplays it quite a lot. He's never been much for poor me, or this was hard. In fact, I, I don't think I don't think he's ever said, said anything about uh, this sucked for me or that sucks for me. I mean, yeah. Uh, look, I don't know how much family history I should really be sharing, but like mm. everyone, people back in the day all kinds of people with very different persuasions and, and, and there was a way of doing things. And even if you weren't necessarily interested in getting married and having kids, like that's what you did, whatever your orientation was. And uh, this sort of idea of the nuclear family or what was expected or was so, so ingrained in, in this idea of what people should do that I think you, you ended up with a bunch of really crazy situations, not, not just for my dad, but for like the generation beforehand as well. Mm. And we're sort of hopefully getting to a point where people are becoming more themselves and, and you, we, we have a, like a plethora of different ways of being. I think things were probably really hard for his dad. I think they were probably really hard for his mom. I think they were really hard for him. But yeah, it's one of those things of just, 
like either what's it going to serve? What should I be talking about it? Or and I guess that's for psychologists and shrinks and stuff to have that conversation. So with these insights, some of them well worn, some of them new. How do you think your relationship will be different now the next time you talk to your dad on these kind of subjects? It's been great to hear him, I guess, talk about himself in a personal sense. And and I think lots of my questions for him in different ways have been trying to crack through a, you know, a, uh, a professional facade with dad to try to, uh, trying to get to some, yeah, nitty gritty, some, some personal stuff. And, and whenever we hit that place or whenever I talk to him and we, we've hit that place, that's always been an absolute joy to me when I feel like, uh, it's not that he's just, he's not genuine or not authentic, but when you find somewhere, when you find some vulnerability and some, that, that's when you get really personable or that's when your relationship between you grows. And I guess that's hard for dudes just in general. You've got to be vulnerable in front of each other. But yeah, no, I think it's good. I, I, it's been fun. We, we like to think of Dad to me as the tip of the iceberg. Uh, hopefully it will. <laughs> as the Titanic. <laughs> the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, metaphor deliberately chosen. But we do hope it, it starts some more conversations for you. And to that end, now the shoe is on the other foot. It's time for you to give us a short account of your own experience with us. Out of, out of five wet bowling balls, mm-hmm. Nick, uh, <laughs> what, would you, what would you rate? How would you rate your experience on Dad to Me? Oh my gosh, they are sopping wet and all five of them are rolling. Oh! Whoa! <laughs> Whoa. That is five wet bowling balls and we are going to have a field day with those. Uh, don't know yeah. what we can do with them, but... <laughs> yeah, right. How can we extend this metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, just, it's so powerful in and of itself. It's better to just let it sit there. Or um, how about we finish that metaphor before things get out of hand? <laughs> Ew! All right, five wet bowling balls. I feel like this is a situation where one of us could easily end up in hospital from overzealous <laughs> prop play, Jump Daddy. Damn it, I knew you were going to let your weekend activities bleed into our podcast. Listeners, let me level with you for just a moment. I do use the word bleed very advisedly considering the size of Dr. Tom's Let's just call them instruments of pleasure. But anyway, (laughs) what light did Nick and Rob shed on fatherhood? Yeah, so first there was that story about Rob breaking down over the plastic tiramisu container. Mm. And yeah, that really gelled with me because it showed a level of care that my dad just absolutely never showed. I mean, he never put a, my dad never put a single thing in the recycling. (laughs) Alpha. (laughs) But yeah, the bigger issue here is about seeing dad cry, I think. So, you know, that moment when you realize that there's this well of emotions inside your father that's just so rarely expressed. Um, You know, for example, my own dad, he would cry very occasionally over great mathematicians and he would cry uh, when he was listening to music. That was the other thing. So, you know, even to the point where he would weep during my trumpet lesson duets as a kid. Yeah, so that expression of of real raw emotion, that sticks in your memory just because it's so rare. Oh, man. Now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen my dad cry. Not that he was like some 
completely unemotional stoic dude. In fact, he was basically the complete opposite. <laughs> but maybe maybe it's because my dad was such a big gesticulator, such a committed communicator. Crying might have been this kind of like this kind of unconscious red line for his masculinity. Like he could go wild with his loud opinions and still be a man, but add tears to you know, his histrionics. And I think the 1950s Australia he grew up in it would have been difficult. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, boys don't cry, but men of that age definitely don't cry. Yeah, but I wonder if the, the, the payoff of that reluctance to cry is, uh, is partly this optimism that we keep seeing, this optimism, um, you know, that each generation is building on the previous. You know, to refer back to Miko from episode one for a second and, and his kind of grand concept of positive thinking. Positive thinking. Positive thinking, you know, always positive, even in the face of overwhelmingly negative evidence sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, well, speaking of building generation on generation, next week we have a daughter, Ems, who's made it big in exactly the same profession as her architect dad, Kim. So join us as we talk anger, fragility, and ye old prescription drug culture from the 1970s. What is the effect of a quaalude? Ah. Uh, they're really good to have sex on. <laughs> <laughs> That's next week's episode. Thanks in the meantime to Rob, Nick and our bender of sound waves and abuser of LucasAid, St. Quentin. <laughs> Thanks for listening and please do rate and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your audio hit. Because Dr. Tom, I'm about to hit you with something else now. You are dad to me. Jump daddy. I appreciate that honesty. You know why? Well, because I'm dad to you. And, and we're, we're dad, dad to us. us. <laughs>